It's the Disenfranchised Podcast, where that podcast all about those franchises of one, those films that fancy themselves full-fledged franchises before falling flat on their face after the first film. I am your host, Stephen Truffle Shuffle Foxworthy, and joining me, as always, uh, the man who never says die, it's my co-host, Brett Wright. Hey, Brett. Hello, Stephen. How are we doing tonight, buddy? I'm fine. Making it, making your way through through the day? Making my way downtown. Walking fast? Faces, Faces past in your homebound? I'm homebound, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's how it goes, man. Sometimes that's how it goes. Brett, I have good news for you, sir. What would that be? Today is this episode is our first episode of our third season, which means, Brett, that we have been doing this now for two full years. This is the start of year three for us. Did you ever imagine back in September of 2020 that we would have made it this far? Uh, no. There's a lot of things I did not expect to happen over the course of the following <laughs> two years. Uh, I understand. Things are different. In a lot of ways for both of us. Yeah. A lot's Indeed. changed. Indeed. But, uh, but we're, I mean, started from the bottom and now we're here just a little higher than the bottom, like yeah. maybe like a few steps up, but you know, Hey, we, we, we made it, man. It's something. It's something. <laughs> Looks like we made it. And so for this auspicious occasion, the premiere of season three, we decided to go to one Brett that you have kind of been stumping for. Uh, from day one, really, this is one that you have been consistently excited to talk about. I think there were one, there was once or twice when it was actually on the schedule and we rearranged it for one reason or another, but Brett, the time has come for us to talk about the seminal eighties classic, uh, that we're discussing today. And Brett, what movie are we discussing today? For those who can't read the title of the episode, what are we discussing today? Yes. Now it's, it's our time. It's our time down here. Up there, it's their time. We're discussing the, the Goonies from 1985. Yes, 1985's The Goonies, directed by Richard Donner from a story by Steven Spielberg and a screenplay written by Chris Columbus, uh, and starring Sean Astin, Josh Brolin, Jeff Cohen, Corey Feldman, Jonathan Kehui Kwan, Carrie Green, Martha Plimpton, John Matuzek, Anne Ramsey, uh, conservative douchebag Robert Davi, Joe Joey Pants Pantoliano, Mary Ellen Trainer, and many, many others. Brett, what a cast. What a picture. Yeah, a lot of uh, young talent here. That will grow up to become um, adult talent one day. In fact, a lot of these actors are... Actors we've seen in other things who've gone on to prominence in other roles and other projects, which is kind of cool up until honestly, very recently in the case of Kei Hui Kwan. So yeah, made a very amazing comeback in his career with uh, everything everywhere all at once, which has to date been my favorite movie of 2022. Like nothing's quite surpassed it. Um, maybe one of the best theatrical experiences of my life. It's, it's up there. Like it's that and it's, there will be blood are probably the two greatest theatrical experiences that I've ever had um, in a movie theater. So, I mean, good movie and he's fucking great in it. And the year before this, Brett, do you know what he did the year before Goonies? I don't remember, but I feel like, well, no, wait, hold on. You should remember. It's his other iconic role as a child. Temple of Doom, isn't it? Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom from 1984. 
Uh, and then f- uh, 10 years after this, Brett, he did a, a movie that we've covered on this podcast. Do you remember that one? No. Speaking of two years, you expect me to remember that? We've covered, this is the 104th movie we've covered on this podcast in the course of the last two years. Uh, so, you know, I, and I know your memory can get a little Swiss cheesy at times. Uh, no, he had a very small role in the movie Encino Man alongside uh, his fellow Goonie, Sean Astin. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. He is, he's the the head of the computer club um, in, uh, in Encino Man. Uh, very small role, like he's getting picked on by a couple students and Link kind of rescues him and like shoves the bullies away and like carry like walks away with him under his arm. Um, and then the next thing you know, Link is in computer club drawing cave art on a computer on like a old school Corel program or something. While Kei Kwan is over his shoulder, kind of smiling and like patting him on the shoulder. So does it is it bad that that feels like a Mandela effect? I want to tell you that scene doesn't exist in the movie because I don't remember a single second of what you just said. I was going to say, if you go back and watch Encino Man tonight, you will see that it is, in fact, in there. And Jonathan Kehi Kwan, or just Kehi Kwan, is absolutely in that movie. So Sure. I, look, I believe you. I'm just saying there's a giant black hole in my memory where that scene exists. I believe it. I Look, and here's the thing. Like, speaking of black holes in memory... Um, I watched the theatrical version of this movie today and I came to realize Brett that I had never seen the theatrical version of this movie before. The only version of this. Yeah. The only version of this movie I saw, like we were a, a family who recorded movies off of television. Oh boy. And so we recorded Goonies off of television. So in addition to the fact that there was no profanity in the version that I grew up watching because we recorded it off of the Disney Channel, there were also giant scenes missing from this movie that I distinctly remember from my childhood because literally they just took all the deleted scenes out of the theatrical release and just put them back in for the broadcast version. Yeah, which they did a lot back then mm -hmm. to pad out runtime for scenes they would cut. For censorship, they just threw in deleted scenes to make up for it. Correct. So um, so the scene in the stop and shop where Chunk is literally opening the pints of ice cream, licking the top and putting them back um, and gets, you know, slammed in by by Troy or uh, the scene with the giant octopus uh, or the scene where Sloth first says, hey, you guys, um, all of that cut out of the movie and didn't realize it till I was watching it. And I'm like, hey, where's the scene? Where, like, Data pinches Mouth's ass with the pinchers of power. Um, and, like, it's not there. And then I watch the outtakes and it's, oh, there it is. That That's where that scene went. Like, they just cut out a bunch of scenes from the movie. And, but that was the version that I grew up watching. Like, I was, I was legit, legitimately like, is it just me? Or was there a scene where they feed a Walkman to an octopus and it dances away? Um, and there was. It was just cut out of the movie which doesn't make a lick of sense then at the end of the movie when they're asking everybody what their favorite, the scariest part was. And Data says the octopus was very scary. And they're like, octopus? And I, as the audience member, I'm sitting, also sitting there going, octopus? Like, that didn't happen in this movie. Did I sleep through that scene? What happened? But uh, but no. So this was, this was a case of me, speaking of a Mandela effect situation, this was a case of me watching a completely different version of this movie all through my childhood. And then as an adult going back and watching it and going, what so there you go yeah i'm i i believe i'm more familiar with the theatrical version but i know i absolutely watched the version you just described as well 
Yeah. I probably watched this movie more on regular TV than I did, you know, on DVD or otherwise. Absolutely. I remember when we recorded it, we were missing like the first 10 minutes of the movie. So most of the setup was lost. Like the whole opening scene where they're breaking uh, Jake out of prison, completely missed that part until I watched it this time. And I was like, oh, okay, this makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> like why Chunk is so freaked out by the bullet holes while why he's telling them the story. Um, yeah, all of that. So but yeah, Brett, we're talking about the Goonies. Um, what is your what is your relationship with the Goonies? When did you first see it? How has uh, how much of an impact has it made? We've talked a little bit about Richard Donner on our Maverick episode, but if you can kind of remind us of your thoughts and feelings on the late great Richard Donner as well, that might be a good thing. Um, I don't. What movies has he done? Uh, so Richard Donner is the man responsible for the entire Lethal Weapon franchise. Uh, he also directed the first Superman movie and parts of the second Superman movie. Um, he directed um, a lot of TV in the 60s, apparently. Um, let me go through his filmography here real quick, or as, as quick as I can anyway. Um, he directed so the, the original Superman. Uh, he's the uh, uncredited director on superman 2 uh he directed the most racist movie in human history the toy i don't know if that's actually true but it's pretty fucking racist uh lady hawk lethal weapon scrooge lethal weapon 2 radio flyer lethal weapon 3 maverick assassins conspiracy theory lethal weapon 4 timeline and 16 blocks cool i like scrooge and maverick as previously mentioned check out previous episode of this podcast maverick Right. Good episode. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that's my history with Donner. Um, not a, not a Superman guy, not, not really, a lethal no. weapon guy. No, not, not, not either one of those, as I believe I mentioned on the Maverick episode. Um, I've said since then, and right? maybe our like, listeners have too. Like, look, how, how are we supposed to remember everything we've ever said, every scene we've ever covered, everything we've ever talked about? We're out of we had to have episodes. We had to have Tucker remind us how frequently we had talked about Ghostbusters Afterlife on this podcast because we didn't remember. Um, so that's a thing that had to happen. <laughs> yeah. All I knew is I just didn't want to talk about it anymore. Correct. Um, and honestly, neither me neither. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. So history with Goonies. Uh, I don't know when I first discovered the film. I was only a year old when it came out. So right. Uh, I don't know. Probably around the same time I discovered Ghostbusters. I mean, I was... It's kind of crazy. I can't think of when I first saw this movie. I, I had to have been around like 10 or 11 mm -hmm. um, early on. But I I was enamored with it right away. Because, uh, you know, I love, love the Indiana Jones movies. I love... It just, I don't know, it captured my imagination. Because it was, you know, a bunch of kids around my age or older just going on an adventure yeah and i don't I think at that time in my life i don't think i'd seen a movie like that before and i mean it really is kind of like indiana jones for kids in a lot of ways it is yeah and it, it had a lot of cool like lore bits and you know just the design of everything was cool and it was creepy in parts mm-hmm and so which like, we know you love the creepy so i do yeah started the ookie spooky 
Yeah. So, and that, yeah, I just, I don't know. I got, I became obsessed with it and just every time it would be on TV, I would stop and watch it. Mm-hmm. So, Same. Um, which did always end up, I, I think I've seen the beginning, the first 10 or 15 minutes of this movie, maybe twice out of right. the 30 times I've watched. Cause most of the time was catching it on TV about 20 minutes in. Mm-hmm. So, which is I'm also not... how most people watch like the Shawshank Redemption or Fight Club. Oh, it's on TV. I guess I'll stop and watch it now. I've missed 20 minutes. Ah, who cares? Yeah. Like, well, and for example, I didn't need to watch the movie for this recording. I've seen it so many times. I will have not have a problem talking about it. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely up there with Ghostbusters in terms of movies I've seen so much I could quote them. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Not as much as Ghostbusters. Sure. I mean, that is your favorite film of all time. So it stands to reason you've probably seen that one more. Yeah. I mean, I, I could sit here and just act out all of Ghostbusters from off the top of the dome. But not Goonies. But I could get close, probably. That's I mean, I don't know that I would go that far with myself, although this was a favorite of mine growing up. It's one that I returned to often. Again, it was one that when it was on TV, I would stop and watch. Probably my first exposure to Richard Donner, honestly. Maybe my first exposure to Steven Spielberg as a producer, perhaps even. Um, but I mean, this definitely has kind of that Amblin feel. Like there's something in this movie that's also very reminiscent of things like that Spielberg produced like gremlins or explorers or you know kind of those like kids go on an adventure kind of movies like explorers is the sci-fi version of goonies like if goonies is the action adventure version explorers is the sci-fi version where ethan hawk and river phoenix and another kid go into outer space and meet robert picardo as an alien directed by joe dante maybe future episode of this podcast question marks hashtag stay tuned um but you know one of one of my favorite you know group of kids getting together and doing a thing movies for sure i'm not sure i'm familiar with that movie with explorers yeah no explorers kind of slaps dude you should watch now it's also a mess because the studio kind of hacked it to pieces but like it's i mean it's joe dante so it's fun like it's it's got some it's got some fun stuff in there um but i would i would goonies to be clear definitely the better movie but i do have a soft spot in my heart for um for explorers um, and then Monster Squad is the horror version of this movie. Like, so they're kind of like, let's put kids, like a group of kids in a genre of movie thing that was really popular in the mid to late 80s. And Goonies is kind of at the forefront of that in a lot of ways. Like, and again, that's kind of the Spielberg thing, right? Like a group of kids, let's put it like when J.J. Abrams did his homage to Spielberg in Super 8, it was, you know, a group of kids basically shooting a movie that was ended up being kind of Cloverfield-esque. Um, so later, that's... later in the 90s, you get the sports movie version in the Sandlot. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, Stranger Things is also kind of an homage to this, you know, group of kids going on adventures kind of storytelling that's just kind of given the whole Amblin thing a little bit of a shot in the arm. Um, but, I mean, Spielberg is one of the one of the most influential filmmakers of all time, one of the most successful filmmakers of all time. So any project that he kind of lent his name to, he could pretty much get made because the assumption was pretty solid. It was going to make some money uh, just based on Spielberg's involvement alone. Uh, And he is the producer in this movie. Like he did 
uh, a decent amount of press. It was his story that ultimately went into this movie. Um, he handed the screenplay duties over to Chris Columbus, who just the year before Brett wrote a little movie that I'm quite fond of called. Do you know the name of this movie, Brett? No, I don't. When I talk about 1984 movies, what movie am I generally talking about, Brett? Uh, probably Gremlins. It's Gremlins, yeah. Chris Columbus wrote the script for Gremlins, which Spielberg also uh, produced. You don't need to sound so put out by that, Brett. <laughs> by the way, I'm just, I'm just saying. Uh, but let me let me track <laughs> Spielberg's producer credits up to this point because this this run is kind of unimpeachable, honestly. Um, let's, I mean, honestly, we could probably start with "I Want to Hold Your Hand" in '78. Uh, he starts with basically working with. Uh, Zemeckis, who was kind of his first protege. And then two years later, he does the Zemeckis film Used Cars. Uh, Continental Divide in 81, a movie I'm not familiar with. And then he produces Poltergeist in 82. A lot of people think that he ghost directed that one. I don't. Uh, a good friend of the podcast, Mike Snoonian, disagrees with me on that. Um, then he does E.T., which he directed in 82. Twilight Zone, the movie in 83. Gremlins in 84. And then the Goonies in 85. Later in 1985, he also um, produces uh, Back to the Future. Little movie. I ever heard of it? Um, no, future, I'm not or, familiar. Uh, past episode of this podcast, Young Sherlock Holmes. And also the film that he directed, The Color Purple. Uh, so 84, 85, kind of prolific from, from Gremlins to Color Purple for Shakespeare. Or Shakespeare, for Spielberg. Um but, but yeah, um, so that's the, I, I guess the arc of his career, but I mean, a lot of bangers in that, in that lineup. So basically anything he touches based on, honestly, based pre predominantly on Jaws, he can more or less get made just because his name is attached, um, which is kind of impressive. And you have to think that he's probably the motivating force behind this movie apparently was on set a lot working with the kids alongside Donner um at no point like everything I've read says that Spielberg directed at least one scene of this movie but the idea is that he was not the the chief it was it was still Donner's film like people aren't making the you know Richard Donner didn't direct Do Goonies argument that they'll make with Toby Hooper on Poltergeist so do we know what scene Spielberg directed I was not able to find that information. Um, so that was, that was not something that I was able to locate. Um, but again, the dude was on set a lot. Dude's a director. It's not outside the realm of possibility that Donner handed him the camera or handed him the chair and was just like, Hey, you want to direct one and, and let Spielberg do it. I mean, Tarantino did it for Robert Rodriguez on Sin City. Like it happens. It, it's a thing that happens. Like if directors are friends, they'll just be like, Hey, you want to do one? I think Spielberg also may or may not have directed a scene on one of the Star Wars prequels. Um, like he at least came on set and there was a joke between him and Lucas where he showed up and acted like he was the director of the movie at one point. Um, but well, uh, so yeah. I, I, I mean, and this going back to my memory a little bit, my memory also does this weird thing where uh, for some reason I have this, inkling of a memory in the back of my head that maybe it's the bottom of the well scene that he directed and I heard that bit of info somewhere at some point I don't know 
And it could have been. I mean, that that is, I think, of all the scenes in the movie, I think that one's kind of the heart of the movie in a lot of ways. Because, um, you know, it's Mikey's really impassioned speech to everybody. Um, it's where you kind of get the motivation for... It, it's really the best scene that Corey Feldman has in this movie, if we're being really honest. Um, like, it's, it's the one time in this movie that he does some actual acting. Um, speaking of Feldman, he also had a really great 1984, Brett. Two horror classics in 1984 that Corey Feldman was a part of. Would you care to hazard a guess what they might have been? Uh, one is probably Lost Boys. 1987. So that's two years after this movie is Lost Boys. One I of them nothing, I've... I got nothing, though. One of them I have already mentioned on this podcast as a movie that I love from 1984. He was in Gremlins? He was in Gremlins. He's the kid that works at the Christmas tree factory. He's the kid that accidentally spills water on Gizmo the first time. I haven't so, seen Gremlins in maybe a decade. So I mean, right. fix your heart, fix your heart, Brett. Fix your heart. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, the other one is Friday the 13th, part four, the colon, the final chapter, uh, where he plays little Tommy Jarvis. That that counts as an iconic horror movie of 1984? It's it's one of the better movies in that franchise, I think. I mean, All your right. mileage may vary on that take, but it's it's my number two in that franchise. So And as friend of the podcast Jerry Smith is wont to say, if you, you know, take out the the slasher element, uh Friday the thirteenth part four is still a, a, a damn good uh coming of age story. So that was something he used to say all the time on Pod and the Pendulum. So, but all right, sure. But I mean, look, people like that movie. People like that franchise. It's not my favorite franchise, but uh, my number one movie in that franchise is a movie that most people agree is the worst one in that franchise. So maybe I'm maybe I'm not the one to 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 say authoritatively which Friday the Thirteenth movies are and are not iconic. But no. I honestly, I'll just be straight up with you. No, you're not. (laughs) Listeners, this is the man that on first watch thought the first Friday the 13th was a terrible film. I did. It's true. Now I think it is uh, pretty good. I'm still not going to go like Masterpiece, but, you know, it's pretty good. Well, even I wouldn't go Masterpiece, but it's still, it's still, like, we that look, we've Brett and I have had two major fights in our entire friendship, um, and one of them was when I said I didn't like the first Friday the Thirteenth movie, and he didn't talk to me for a week. I mean, there was more to it than that, but yeah, more or less, it's, <laughs> it was his ridiculous defense of that opinion that made me not talk to him for a week. Let's be clear. Sure, I don't remember everything I said. It was probably shitty. Uh, let's be honest. Um. But, yeah. Yeah, well, so. we'll keep that under wraps so as not to get you blacklisted from horror movie Twitter. Sure. I, look, I, not all my, not all the takes are good, people. Like, I, and, and part of it is the fact that I came to so many of these horror films later in life because I didn't watch them growing up. So I don't have the, the nostalgia factor that a lot of horror fans have for some of these franchises. Like, I'm pretty lukewarm on the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street franchises as a whole. Well, um, hold on. You're just not, you don't have nostalgia for most things, period. True. 
So true. Um, honestly, it you know, like I, I, yeah, it's I'm not like someone who's ruled and governed by my by my nostalgia for anything really. Let's let's be clear. So, um, so yeah, it's it's not that I'm. Yeah, it's not that I'm trying to be obtuse or difficult. It's just that, you know, I came to a lot of these things late after my sense of, you know, film literacy had already been well established. So um, I don't have the the deep abiding love for a lot of these franchises that most people have. Um, but it also means that I get to format, I get to formulate, excuse me, my opinions on them uh, as, as an adult, which means that, you know, the the they it, it may not always hit in fact it might it might often miss let's to be clear so whereas i live off of nostalgia and this is one of my most nostalgic favorites and for fear of going deep into another philo- philosophical conversation um, <laughs> see our last we, episode on lord of the rings 1978 because we could right now um, we could let's, let's let's move on from that um, right 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 and I don't know. Should we just should we do the plot and sixty? Let's go ahead and jump into the plot and sixty. Let's do it. So for those of you joining us for the first time for our Goonies episode, uh, first of all, welcome. We're glad to have you. As we we always are glad to have new listeners. Um, but this is the part of the show where we uh, recount the plot of the movie that we're talking about in sixty seconds or less. Uh, it's not an original idea, but it's an idea that we use. Uh, the thing that we do to make it original is that every week we flip the coin of justice who decides which of us will be recounting the plot of the film in 60 seconds or less. I have the coin of justice here in my hand. I'm going to flip it. Brett is going to call it in the air. Brett, I do remind you that this is the start of season three, uh, which means that uh, per your um, per your own self-set rule, um, you will be um, changing the call that you make at the beginning of every episode. So, yes, season one was tails, season two was heads. Because yeah, I didn't want to, I didn't want the mental overhead of having to decide every single episode. So, sure, season one was tails, season, uh, season two was heads. So, season three will return to tails. All right, so here goes the here goes the toss. Let's try that again. Bad toss that I fumbled. And it is heads. Yep. See, I told you this was going to happen. You did tell me this was going to happen. Apparently, the coin of justice only only flips heads, but rare, but rarely uh, will it flip tails. So, Brett, it falls to you to recount the plot of one of your nostalgic favorites, Goonies, in sixty seconds or less. Let me get sixty seconds on the clock, and you let me know when you're ready, and I will go ahead and start said clock. All right, I think I am uh, all set to go. All right, then, sir, your time. She starts right now. All right, so uh, the, the entire group is facing foreclosure from their homes in their local town. Um, they, they, they call themselves the Goonies because they're all the outcasts. Um, and they're, they're rummaging around in uh, their, uh, one of the friend's attics, and they find Milk of Bloom and a treasure map. They decide, hey, we can go take this treasure map and try to find the treasure and save all of our houses. So they go on an adventure to find the treasure, um, and they stumble uh, across um, the Fratellis, the mob. 30 seconds. Um, who also have a um, deformed uh, person with them uh, who befriends the Goonies later on. 
and they avoid a bunch of booby traps and stay ahead of the Fratellis and make it to One-Eyed Willie's ship, the Inferno, and they find the treasure. Ten seconds. And they turn over the gems to the company, the insurance company, and they save the day and get the Fratellis arrested. And that is time. Congratulations, sir. That was... Uh... You accused yourself much better there than the last time, for sure. Well done. Um, so, yeah, that is the plot of 1985's Le Goonies, uh, which in English is just The Goonies. Um, but, yeah, so there we go. Let's let's talk. Let's talk The Goonies. Uh, so, again, just in terms of how this movie got made, it's it, Spielberg has the idea for the story, a group of kids um, who go – uh, you know, on a, on a pirate adventure, uh, Richard Donner, uh, kind of hot off of, uh, Superman really at the time, uh, is brought on to direct. Um, and, uh, yeah, the movie does okay box office wise, but really cleans up on the home video market becomes uh, a bit of a cult favorite. And then, uh, yeah, eventually gets, uh, you know, becomes significantly more popular in that market. Um, but I think what's I think what's interesting about this movie is how it cements what we call um, kind of the Amblin effect or or the Amblin thing that that Spielberg had kind of already done on movies like E.T. and Close Encounters and Gremlins, like just these kids on an adventure in a genre kind of movie um, that kind of becomes the Amblin thing for lack of a better word. Like it's kind of the thing that we recognize when we think, and when we talk about Amblin as a studio. Yeah. Which I is obviously not something I even really noticed. It was a thing. It, I love all of those types of movies, mm -hmm. um, but never realized they were sort of a, I don't know. Could you call that a trope? I, I don't know if I would call it a trope, although maybe it is um, now that I think about it, maybe it is a trope of, of that particular type of filmmaking or the, the type of the type of filmmaking we most commonly associate with Spielberg, honestly, like that seems to be kind of the thing that really characterizes at least a lot of his eighties output. Um, and I think as he grows up, he kind of veers away from some of those stories. Like, and we even see it in 85 when he does the color purple, a movie that he would probably be the first one to admit he's not the right person for. Um, but then as, as he kind of continues, like Amblin becomes less associated with these groups of children and more associated with this kind of general sense of wonder. Um, and when we think about Spielberg now, we think of things like Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. And I mean, still Jaws. Jaws is still a big one. And E.T. and kind of the things in that movie that make our jaws drop, like the scene where the kids start flying on their bicycles or, you know, the scene when, you know, Roy Scheider uh, sees the shark for the first time or, you know, the the whole opening of Close Encounters, like those those kind of moments that really are spielberg-esque in their execution like that that kind of sense of awe and wonder is becomes the thing i think we often associate with spielberg after he gets out of his let's put a bunch of kids on an adventure kind of movies character removes sunglasses and stares off camera in surprise at something at something right yeah the the what we call the alan grant effect absolutely yeah, yeah. alan um I'm, that was my velociraptor impression alan um 
but yeah. So, I mean, yeah, they, I mean, and that's, that is kind of the Spielberg thing. Like he, he liked working with kids a lot. Um, he is the one who finds, uh, Kehu, Kehu, Kwan, excuse me, uh, as a young actor and just loves his like personality. And so they cast him as short round and Spielberg loved working with him so much on temple of doom that they're like, let's bring you over to Goonies. Cause you are incredible. Um, to the f- extent that Kehui Kwan's parents had a hard time telling George Lucas and Steven Spielberg apart. So they would call them men, man with beard one and man with beard two, um, <laughs> because they were both dark haired gentlemen with beards. That's, that's fucking incredible. Uh, right. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? I love, I absolutely love that anecdote, which is something that Kehui Kwan shared like years later on one of those, like, I think it was on the Indiana Jones and the temple of doom, like bonus features on the DVD, like the DVD box set that came out. Yeah. I honestly, I gotta say his character is my favorite. I think yeah, of, of all the Goonies, his, his character is probably my favorite. Um, Has he always been your favorite? Like was that your favorite character when you were a kid as well? I believe so, yeah, because he had a lot of cool gadgets, and he um, was the smart one. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I I always kind of my idealized version of myself was Data, but in reality, I was a weird cross between Chunk and Mouth. If we're being real honest, like I was a I know this is a, just a, a shock to everybody, uh, but I was a little fat kid who got picked on for being fat, um, and I was also you know smartass. So I mean, ask my parents; they'll tell you. Um, so, you know, and my mouth got me in more trouble than anything else when I was growing up. So, yeah, I was I was a weird cross between Chunk and Mouth. Um, if if Mouth had like the personality of Chunk, that's probably more where I was. Um, I also had a tendency to use words I didn't understand a lot like Mikey. So, you know. Oh, yeah, I, I think if I'm being more honest, I was probably a combination of uh, Sloth and Mikey. Not so much yeah. Mouth, but, uh, but yeah, the idealized version of me. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I ideally, I mean, data is the platonic ideal of what I wanted to be as a child. Um, and I thought I was going to be a great inventor. Uh, nope. You have to have some kind of mechanical inclination and I don't son of an engineer, no mechanical inclination whatsoever. So what are you going to do really? Carve out your own path and be your own person. Start a podcast, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's what. I guess that's the only recourse we have at this point. <laughs> uh, which is what I ended up doing. So hey, doing great, Dad. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. So uh, for me, it was I'm, and Chunk is also. I think Chunk's got the best jokes in the entire movie. If I'm being real honest, I think Chunk's got the best jokes. Um, and now I watch it now, and I'm like, Chunk is cringy. He makes all the fat jokes. He does. I kind of hate him. So it for me, though, and this it for me, it's the best scene in the whole damn movie. I it's the it's the scene where the Fratellis are interrogating him and he starts sobbing and recounting every bad thing he's ever done in his entire life. And it has me in stitches every damn time. It is the funniest scene in the whole fucking movie. I absolutely love and the worst thing I ever done was I put a bunch of fake puke in my jacket. It it and and like Joey Pants is just like fucking pissed. Robert Davi cannot get enough. He's just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And and Mar- Ann Ramsey is just kind of like glowering there off to the side. It's such a great scene. And for for a child actor, and I I am a an, a noted 
anti-child actor kind of individual. Um, but like, I love Jeff Cohen's performance in that scene. Some of the other parts of the movie, I'm like, this is a little much like the whole truffle shuffle thing. I mean, what fat kid didn't get picked on in the eighties and nineties and asked to do the truffle shuffle. Um, it happened a lot. Um, thanks to this movie and it's, you know, kind of relegation of chunk to as being quote, the fat character. Um, but that scene alone, just, just the whole. And also when he's crawling out, like, it's okay. I love the dark. I love the dark smacked in the face with a tree, but I hate nature. I hate nature. Like I just, I related to that as a kid. Like I just thought he had the best jokes and I still do. Like, I still think he's the funniest character in the movie is, has that type of role aged pretty poorly. Yes. Yes, it has. I, you know, the whole token fat person thing. Um, the only thing I hate worse than the token fat person trope is when they put a skinny actor in a fat suit and try to pass them off as a fat person. Um, that's the only thing that pisses me off more. Stellan Skarsgård in Dune, Colin Farrell in the Batman, like just let fat people play fat people, man. Like just, just let it happen. Eddie Murphy in any of his movies, Eddie Murphy in literally anything. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's the, there's also the trope of, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the black man playing a large black woman trope that happens a lot. You get Eddie Murphy in Norbit and the Nutty Professor, Martin Lawrence in Big Mama's House, Tyler Perry in literally every movie Tyler Perry's ever directed. Like that happens a lot, actually. Um, and I don't know if there's some basis for that in, in performance or not. Someone, someone much more knowledgeable about that could probably speak to that, but yeah. Uh, we can, that's another, well, that's, that's, that's a philosophical conversation. We probably shouldn't be having. No, you're not wrong. We could have it, but we could dig into the history of that. I, I have not done so at this point, so I'm not comfortable discussing it, but you're right. That probably not a conversation for us to have, um, on as to, uh, as two cishet white guys who, you know, have a podcast and talk about movies on the internet. Um, resp- if, if we were acting responsibly, that's not our movie to talk about. No, no, but we are two overweight gentlemen who can absolutely talk about how much we hate the fat comic relief character. Correct. Um, and I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm reminded of a, a story that Patton Oswalt tells in one of his stand up specials about the time he met Brian Dennehy for the first time. And like, he's at like one of those Hollywood parties and he's like, I'm going to use willpower and I'm not going to eat this food. I'm going to try to lose weight. I'm going to try to look good, whatever. And he runs into Brian Dennehy, noted large man, Brian Dennehy. And like, they have a a nice conversation and talk to each other. And then after the conversation, he's like, I felt really good. And then I noticed the food. And the next thing you know, I'm like, my willpower shit. So I'm piling my plate. And then Dennehy comes up with a giant plate of food himself, smacks me on the back and says, character actors, huh? Who gives a fuck if we're fat? And I'm just like, God bless you, Brian Dennehy. Like, God bless you. And, you know, there are there's a certain caliber of large actor. And, you know, you get your guys like Brian Dennehy and Brian Cox and Paul Walter Hauser, you know, large gentlemen who actually are really incredible performers and really gifted performers. And the fact that you then have a a noted a, a role of a noted fat person like the Penguin or Baron Harkonnen, and you give that to a person that you're just going to put in a fat suit, and that that kind of sucks. Yeah, it, it does. And as much as I was incredibly shocked and impressed by Colin Farrell's performance in The Batman... Oh, it's a good performance. Yeah, Best performance in that movie, I would say. This is amazing. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I also can't, I can't sit here and say, you know, 
yeah, that should have went to him, but there's perfectly good other actors that could have. Been. Sure. I, you know, and, and you'll get no disagreement from me on that point. Like there's a, there's an interview, a lie detector test interview that one of the major publications did with Danny DeVito recently. And they hand him a picture of Colin Farrell. And they're like, what about this penguin? He goes, Colin, Colin's a great guy, but my penguin was better. And he looks at the person administering the test. He goes, was that true? And they're like, you were telling the truth. He's like, yeah, see, I thought it was better. Like, that's my opinion, but Colin's a great guy. Like, and I'm just like, God bless you, Danny DeVito. Cause you're absolutely right. Like, Batman Returns, maybe one of the best Batman movies ever. Maybe the best Batman movie ever. Uh, hold on. No. Dark, not as long as Dark Knight exists. I'm not going to agree with that statement. I'm, I mean, I did say maybe. Sure. It, it's up there. Is it up there? And is it is it an underappreciated classic? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, as I recall, it did make your top five Christmas movies list that we did on Patreon. Patreon.com slash disenfranchise or disenfranchise pod. Sorry. Does the Dark Knight take place during Christmas? I'm just, I'm just saying, dude. Like, I know you love that movie, so context, context is important, my friend. And and, and I also, I also said maybe. Yeah, all right, fair enough. I mean, if if we're gonna if we're gonna split some hairs here, I got some hairs to split, baby. Um, but no, I mean, look, we can both agree. Can we at least agree the best of the first four Batman movies? Yes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brett Brett is conflicted, but I mean, and, I and, mean, look, you're. I gotta. This is one of those situations where I have to ignore my nostalgia and and be more objective because I can't defend Batman Forever anymore. Uh, look, man, like Batman Forever is a better movie than I think a lot of people remember it being. Uh, but is it better than Batman Returns? No, I wouldn't even say it's better than. This the eighty nine Batman, honestly, for being real honest. No, and I I can't forgive how what they did to my boy. They massacred my boy. They massacred my boy. Your boy, of course, being Two Face. Yeah. Played by Academy Award winner Tommy Fuck Tommy Lee Fucking Jones. So Yes. Yeah. Who cannot sanction Jim Carrey's buffoonery. Right. But um But anyway, but no. Goonies. Fat people. Uh, We're talking about fat, fat people. people and chunk and the Goonies. We, I mean, it, while we're on the sort of problematic topic, sure. Because uh, there, look, there's there are parts of this movie that legitimately don't hold up all that well. Yeah, I mean, we got to talk about sloth a little bit. Yes, we do. Uh, played by um, Oakland Raiders um, football player i don't even know what position he played I, i'm not a sports guy sorry john matuzic is the is the name of the performer that played sloth um who i'm gonna find out what position he played uh he was a defensive end in the national football league and then eventually became an actor he passed away in 1989 uh and he is he, he another another major role of his brett future episode of this podcast the ice pirates interesting Hmm. Maybe one that we'll discuss sooner than later. Is that a pirate theme? Is it, is it a pirate theme month? Wink, wink. It's not, but wink, um, wink, wink, wink. Um, but so yeah, let's let's get into let's get into the sloth of it all, Brett. Because I mean, there's 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 pros and cons here. Uh, there are actually there are because he maybe starts out as a shitty stereotypical tropey character. I mean, he is essentially viewed as a monster when the kids see him because he's 
kind of monstrous looking, which is part of the problem. Yeah, he's chained up in a basically a cell. Mm-hmm. It kind of deformed facial features. Yeah, but he becomes a heroic figure at the end of the movie, and is and at, at no point is he by the main characters of the film. At no point is he treated as anything less than a a valuable member of the group. It's his family that treats him like shit. And they're the bad yeah. guys. We're not supposed to guys. like them. Yeah. And I think it, it's really only the, I would argue really only the beginning when he's first introduced is the problematic part. Right. Um, the rest of it though, within context is, is great. Honestly, it's great representation. Mm-hmm. He's, Cause like you said, he's, he's never looked as anything less than their friend. Um, and I mean, he gets one of the most like cheer inducing parts at the end. It's, hey, you guys. Yeah, it's it's cool. Mm-hmm. So I think that and when he tears open well. his shirt and he's got the Superman logo and they play the John Williams Superman theme for a couple bars like that's great. Love yeah, that. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so, I mean, it's it's maybe not as problematic as you would think on the surface. Well, and I mean, but all, part of it is also the voice that he's affecting for that John Matuzic is affecting for the role. It's, it's very, that, yeah. it is pretty stereotypical. Like again, is this, is, 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 is it perfect? No. Um, I think for the time, it's probably better representation than most are getting, but it's still very stereotypical. And, and as a result, kind of problematic. Now, again, it's kind of unfair for us to put, 21st century mores on a film from the 1980s but we do need to recognize where flaws in the past have happened and kind of point them out to say yes we recognize them no we don't condone them that kind of thing is wrong then and wrong now as all the streaming services are now so fond of saying but it's it's a part of the cinematic landscape and we do have to reckon with it which is something that we've discussed on this podcast a time or two in our history yeah because and honestly i just thought of this we could also call out Data's character. Mm-hmm. They made the Asian one the smart one. Like, right, who has all the gadgets and things. Yeah, that's also stereotypical. Correct. It's a little problematic. So, yep. look, are there there's some things about this movie that don't hold up? Absolutely. Correct. Uh, but is it also a nostalgic classic for me and many people of my age? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those those elder millennial or geriatric millennial, depending on your term staples. Like it's just kind of one of those movies that most of us grew up on and returned to. Um, and it is kind of that nostalgia boost that, you know, gets the dopamine and the endorphins kick in, you know, it, it makes you a little happy. Um, and it's, it's a fun movie, man. Like, come on. It's, it is, the it's a lot of fun. We've talked before about like, uh, Sunday TV matinee movies that you could just mm-hmm. have on in the background, or you know, like we said earlier, just when they're on TV, you stop and watch them. Right. Um, it's, it's this is one of those movies just because it's so fun. It's it's an easy watch, mm-hmm. and it's, it's it it also has a good message too. One of the things I loved about it growing up was that this was a movie about a bunch of outcasts who were picked on all the time who got to be heroes. Which for a couple of kids like us that were picked on a lot. Growing up, it, there was a, there was a relatable element to that. Like, I mean, even the older brother, who's the the quote unquote cool one, is also stigmatized and picked on in this movie. Like, he's he's 
kind of quote put in his place quite a bit by the the rich kid character Troy who's given off just serving up some real strong Donald Trump Jr vibes in this movie if I can if I can just say um like just some really cringy whiny uh my dad's rich so you have to do what I say kind of energy um if 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 I can get away with saying that I, I it's my podcast of course I can um but yeah serve, serving up some real strong D, DTJ vibes in this one for sure Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Like, but I mean, he was, that's a bully trope from the 80s, if I've ever seen one. Right. He's the dude's, the dude's just a walking, both of them, uh, D, D2 and, and uh, Eric both are just kind of, you know, they are the, the frat guys in the 80s movie who like try to go up against the Delta house or the, the nerd house. Like they're, they're the, the kids from the, the evil jock fraternity down the, down the street. Like, that's just the vibes that they're serving. And that's 100% what Troy's character is. I mean, the first time we see him, he's adjusting his rearview mirror to try to look up Carrie Green's skirt. Um, like, fucking creep moves, man. Like, you, did, you did, just don't do that. Not, not, to, not to Carrie Green. Not to anybody. No. That's, I mean, that's a perfect example. It's a quick little scene that tells you exactly all you need to know about that guy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the next scene that I mean, in the extended version, he like comes into the stop and shop and like starts beating up on the Goonies just for existing. Um, you know, he he shoves Chunk into the freezer and kind of closes him in the freezer, um, starts to beat up on Sean Astin. Josh Brolin steps in and about kicks his face in uh, and then doesn't. So, I mean, it's again, he's he's just serving up that kind of stereotypical 80s bully vibe. Uh, but that is again just the vibe that the Trump kids just kind of ooze by virtue of their by virtue of their presence. The the my dad's rich, so you have to do what I say kind of idea, which carries through right to the end when he's like, yeah, and starts taunting the dad like he's an adult who you know is in any position of authority to be saying anything. But yeah, yeah, the audacity. Correct. Um, but yeah, there is uh, you know Troy. Troy's a piece of shit. There's. The best scene in the movie is the scene where he gets uh, blown off the toilet. Um, so, yeah. yeah. He gets his comeuppance, and it's very cathartic, and we all cheer, and we love it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's it's kind of one of those scenes that you're like, that's in this movie? But yeah, it is. It and it, it kind Because of, it kind of feels more like something out of a Porky's than it feels like something out of a Goonies. But it's in this movie, so, yeah. You know, it, look, you gotta... It's tough to work that sort of thing in when the main cast is deep down in some caverns for the entire movie. Right. Yeah. How do the comeuppance to the guy up there and be living a normal life? Right. I mean, cause, cause you know, another version of this movie might have him and his buddies kind of chasing them down through the sewers, uh, which is something you see in like it, uh, where, you know, the bullies go down into the sewers to like chase the, the group of kids down there. Um, you see it kind of a little bit in stand by me also, which is another movie that kind of has, some similar energy to this movie group of kids going on some adventure, finding a dead body. Also Corey Feldman is there. Um, you know, a lot, there's a fat character that gets picked on a lot by the Corey Feldman character. I mean, there's, there's a lot of similarities between Goonies and, and stand by me, but you know, it's a thing that Stephen King kind of harnesses in some of his earlier work as well. Um, kind of this group of kids on an adventure kind of thing. So between Spielberg and King, you've got two very prominent Stevens uh, kind of shaping our idea of what 80s entertainment is and should be. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it, it would also maybe have gone a little bit too dark if you had them come down 
like behind the Fratellis or something. Like there's a third group right. going then, through everything. They probably end up dying by the end of the movie if that's the case. Right. Like that is that's that's the bleaker version of this movie. Like if this if this movie were made today, all three of those kids would die at some point. Like Troy would be the last one to die. Troy would probably sacrifice the other two. Uh, and then probably end up getting like shot by Mama Fratelli or something at the, end, at the end of the movie or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. So instead he just has his uh, asshole ruined for the rest of his life by a large stream of water. And, uh, and again, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, someone, someone uh, get to work on the plumbing underneath Mar-a-Lago, please. And thank you. Um, but uh would also imply there's this pirate ship of treasure underneath Mar-a-Lago too. Let's not get I mean, that. where where do where do you think the man keeps his money? Let's be honest. Um yeah, that the is real not... one eyed Willie is Donald Trump, is that what you're saying? <laughs> I I mean if if one eyed Willie is a euphemism for male genitalia, then he's a pretty big one eyed Willie. Uh so no, you're not wrong. I'm just throwing that out there. The real one-eyed Willie, though, Brad, I think we both know, is the friends we made along the way. There it is. <laughs> um, let's talk Fratelli's a little bit. Like, this is my first exposure to Anne Ramsey, who has been, like, just... Really? Yes. It, well, I mean, Goonies is my first exposure to Anne, Ram- Anne Ramsey. Um, but a veteran character actress from, like, from the early 70s. Um, kind of just shows up in various things. Of course, the two films that I know her best from are this and the movie that she does uh, right towards the end of her life. One of the last films that she does in 1987, a little movie directed by the aforementioned Danny DeVito called Throw Mama from the Train, where she plays the titular mama. Um, Have you seen Throw Mama from the Train? Of course, yeah. I mean, what I just... can Can I just say... Brett, how underrated a filmmaker I think Danny DeVito is. I think you've mentioned this before. Like Did I'm a, talk about Danny DeVito before. I don't remember. I don't know when we would have talked about Danny DeVito as a filmmaker before, but I have seen just over half of his filmography. I think the only two I'm missing are Duplex and Hoffa are the two movies of his I've not seen. But um, dude knows how to, particularly a dark comedy no one quite directs a dark comedy quite like Danny DeVito and throw mama from the train. It's basically strangers from a train if done as a dark comedy. Um, and it's great. Like Billy Crystal is trying to kill uh, his wife played by Kate Mulgrew and Danny DeVito is trying to play, uh, ter- trying to kill his abusive mother uh, played by Anne Ramsey. Uh, and so they decide to switch and kill each other's, uh, problem people so it is literally like and they literally come up with the idea after watching strangers on a train um so it's it's a ripoff of strangers on a train that literally calls out it's a ripoff of strangers on a train which again who better than danny devito to, to figure out how to do that like it's really good yeah i haven't seen it in a very long time but it's been a few years for me but i i, I need to probably sit down and rewatch all of danny devito's movies because again dude just and he's in most of the movies that he directs too, and he's he's very good in them, honestly. Like I love I love particularly I love his character in War of the Roses, which is probably one of my top two favorite DeVito movies. It's that and Death to Smoochie, which is a movie that I recognize is probably not great, but I love it unabashedly anyway. So Yeah, that may be the only movie of his that I've seen. 
Um, so it's it's Throw Mama from the Train, it's Hoffa, it's War of the Roses, it's Matilda. Oh, it's, Matilda. Okay. And then it's Death to Smoochie, and then it's Duplex. I think those are the six that he's directed. Um, but he's I've not directed two a lot. Of six. Okay. So um, I Death to Smoochie, again, one of my favorites. Highly recommend. War of the Roses, a damn near perfect movie. Um, and again, such an incredible dark comedy, like to the point where you might not even be able to tell it's a comedy. It's so dark. Like, it's really, really good. Um, why we're talking about the filmography of Danny DeVito on our Goonies episode, I'm not sure. Oh, and Ramsey. That's what. Yeah, and Ramsey. It's, it's tangentially related. Sure, sure. We 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 backtracked. We got there. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, b- between this and and Throw Mama from the Train, like those are the Anne Ramsey movies I've seen. What else have you seen Anne Ramsey in, Brett? Because uh, you seemed a little surprised when I said this was my first exposure to Anne Ramsey. I mean, you you've done this to me again. I'm sorry. She's also in Scrooge, a movie that you have seen. Yes. Yeah, see, like, you put me up, like, listeners, if you're just coming to season three now, if you're a first-time listener now. Uh, first of all, welcome. We're this. glad to have you. Yeah, welcome. We're glad to have you. Uh, we get used to this. Um, I'll have plenty of knowledge in my brain until Stephen asks me a question about it, and then it all leaves. Usually a direct question, and then, yeah, it just kind of flies out. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, she kind of, it's mo- it looks like mostly small things. She's in When You Coming Back, Red Rider. Uh, she's in um, a movie called The Black Marble. She's in a sequel to a movie we mentioned on last week's episode, Brett. Uh, the movie Any Which Way But Loose. She's in the sequel Any Which Way You Can. Um, she plays Loretta Quince in that movie. Uh, she does a few TV movies. She's in the movie Class Reunion, a few more TV movies, TV series. Um, she's in The Killers, The Goonies, um, Say Yes. She's in the Wes Craven film Deadly Friend. Um, and I'm after that, it's throw mama from the train, um, doctor, something called Dr. Hackenstein, something called the river pirate. She's in Scrooge. And then her last three movies are ones I've never seen. Meet the hollow heads, another chance and Homer and Eddie are her last three films before she dies in 1989. All right. Yes, yeah, I, I feel like, uh, yeah, the, the reason I probably don't remember is she's very much like a character actor. She's one of those, that guy actors, as we like to call them. Correct. Um, she just shows up and stuff. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I, no, it's it's her. It's it's Ma Fratelli because again, people our age, that's that's how we know her. Yeah. So you know, I mean, much like other that guy actors, uh, I probably couldn't name a lot of the movies they were in, but I mm-hmm. recognize them if you show me a picture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, Anne Ramsey's great. Um, we also probably should talk a little bit about. Um, conservative pos uh robert davi who is directing the the breitbart funded movie about hunter biden's laptop um i mean we don't have to talk about him Uh, um i mean i like him in this movie but he's a piece of shit now and so yeah that's all we'll need to say um yeah um don't see the hunter biden movie um we'll we'll never cover it even if it wasn't intended to kick off a franchise we'll never cover it um, and then uh, the the third member of the Fratellis is the great Joey Pants. Like, how can we not? We stand Joey Pants. Let's be honest. Yeah, he's, he's he's got a ton of roles that millennials will know him for. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's he's an absolutely iconic actor. Most of us probably know him from the Matrix. He's in the original Matrix. He's in 
Uh, he's in the Wachowski's first film, Bound. He's in Christopher Nolan's uh, breakthrough movie, um, Memento. He's in the Bad Boys franchise. He's in the the Ben a- future episode of this podcast, the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie. Um, we talked a little about Joey Pants on our Matrix episode, uh, patreon.com slash disenfranchpod. Um, but no, we love Joey Pants. We stand Joe uh, we stand Joey Pants. Um, what a what a fucking great actor. And um he's in the fugitive. I forgot he's in the fugitive. Like Which for those not familiar, we're talking about Joe Pantoliano. Right. Sorry, yeah. Uh Joe Pantoliano. And and again, this is one of his early roles. I wouldn't say his first movie, although this is the first movie for a number of actors in this film. Um, but like not his first movie, but probably one of his first well-known ones. He's also, I guess I should, in 83, he's in risky business, um, which is probably, a, a like at least a somewhat larger role. Uh, but then the year after this, he's in running scared. Uh, he's in La Bamba in 87 and Spielberg's empire of the sun also in 87, uh, the great midnight run in 1988. We got the Duke like, he he starts gaining in prominence kind of slowly around this time, but he is a character actor for all for all intents and purposes. And so he's one whose name probably wouldn't have been super recognizable until he, you know, gets started, starts getting cast by the Wachowskis in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, he's, he's great. I love him. Uh, yeah, no, we we definitely stand Joey Pants. Um one of my favorite Joe Pantoliano anecdotes is um, he started a charity for actors and uh, show business people who are living with depression. Uh, and he, do you know what the name of this organization is, Brad? I am not familiar. No, no kidding. Me too. Because whenever um, someone would, he'd, he'd talk to someone and they'd mention that they were struggling with depression. His response would always be no kidding. Me too. Um, so that was what he called the organization, which I think is kind of funny and kind of cool. But yeah, no, we absolutely stand Joe Pantoliano. What a what an incredible talent. Um, to say nothing of the child actors in this movie, uh, pretty much all of whom, with the exception of maybe two, went on to do a lot um, with regard to acting. Although I think most of them and did end up staying in the business. Jeff Cohen, I know, became a... Um, became an agent, a Hollywood agent. Um, but you know, still, still works in the industry. Uh, Carrie green, I think is the one who probably doesn't show up quite as much. I think she's still a working actress, but, uh, didn't really gain the prominence that uh, a lot of her co-stars did in this movie. The last credit she has as an actress is in the 2012 film complacent. Uh, and before that, just, you know, a lot of TV guest spots, it looks like for one or two episodes, her last major, uh, film role, was it looks like in 1993 she was in a little movie called Blue Flame where she plays a character called Rain. That's cool. Uh, good for her. I doubt right. she has a better career somewhere else. And and I I mean I just hope she's doing what she loves. Um yeah. but Sean Astin had, had a big crush on her. Probably character I had the biggest crush on. In the I mean, how could you not? She she was um she was an attractive female who seemed uh, willing to get down. Like, it's not uh, sure. Uh, not really the reasons I was had a crush on her, but sure, you could have a crush on her for wanting to fuck. 
I mean, I don't know. Like I, I like females who are flirty. What can I say? Um, <laughs> all right. Apparently Brett's canceling me on that opinion. Sorry. Um, but, uh, I mean, Sean Astin obviously goes on to, um, his, his larger prominence as, uh, Samwise Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, in fact, his known for are the three Lord of the Rings films and Goonies. Uh, but before that he was, uh, pretty well known as, uh, Rudy, at least around the parts in which we live, Brett, because, uh, we live in Indiana and Rudy is just kind of a way of life around here. Uh, Rudy is the last thing I associate Sean Astin with, but you know, I'm not a sports guy. I'm a nerd guy. Same. And I mean, big same. However, uh, I have an uncle who's a big Notre Dame fan. So like it or not, I knew who Rudy was. Um, uh, Josh Brolin, this is Josh Brolin's first movie. Um, I want to say it is uh, Jeff Cohen's first movie also. Um, but you also have, uh, Martha Plimpton in this movie. I think one of her f- early roles as well, uh, who goes on to do, um, among other things, she's most recently on raising hope. Um, uh, the show that she was on that got a lot of attention. Um, but she's, she's been on a lot of, she's done a lot of television. Um, she was in the, the Broadway revival of company from the early 2010s. Uh, I mean, she just kind of shows up in things and is usually, very good in them. Apparently she and Corey Feldman did not get along on set, which go figure. I mean, that seems to track really, doesn't it? <laughs> right. Um, and then you've got Kay, Kay Kwan, who we've mentioned before. Um, and his is kind of a sadder story. He got out of acting for a number of years because there really wasn't any representation for Asian actors in Hollywood. Um, he kind of kicks around for a few years. He shows up on, um, a couple of TV shows after this movie comes out. Um, and then basically in the nineties kind of drops off. He does a movie in t- 2002 called second time around, and then doesn't really do anything in Hollywood again until finding Ohana in 2021. And then everything everywhere all at once after that. So he, he kind of lays low for a while. He's got some additional crew credits, some stunt credits, cinematographer credits. Like he's got some other credits on IMDb. But like in terms of his trajectory, like he pretty much just stopped acting for a long time until he saw, I think the movie was Crazy Rich Asians. He saw it and went, oh, there might be something for me there now. And then gets cast in everything, everywhere, all at once and delivers one of the greatest performances of the year so far, in my in my opinion. Yeah, he's he's a fantastic actor and he was just waiting on Hollywood to catch up. And And honestly, I just I'm kind of bummed thinking about all of the the roles that he could have played that we missed out on him playing as a result of him just not thinking there was a place for him to belong in Hollywood. Kind of a bummer. No, it absolutely is. Imagine all the other, you know, people of color actors that Mm -hmm. feel the same way that we're missing good performances from. Absolutely. I mean, there are, there are several like, and it's, it's a shame that it's taken Hollywood this long to catch up. It's also a shame that the only reason Hollywood has catched up, has caught up, catched up. Good Lord has caught up is the fact that um, they see that it's lucrative now. Like they see that, Oh, if we make movies that have representation in them, we'll make money. So it's now more cost effective for us to put people of color in movies. You know, there, it's not some altruistic reason like, oh, we need this is important that we see people of color in movies. It's entirely financial. Let's I'm, maybe I'm deeply cynical, but I don't think that's far from the truth, Brad. Uh, no, I agree. 
uh, I think it is the truth. I don't think it's not far from the truth. It is the truth. <laughs> I mean, given everything that we've discussed over the last two years on this podcast, Brett, it's it's not difficult for us to become a little jaded when it comes to the machinations of the studio executives and the studio heads, because at the end of the day, they're just trying to make money. Yeah. And right. unfortunately, that ends up give, putting them in shitty situations like the current Warner Brothers Discovery debacle, and they only have enough money left in their budget to market two movies this year, and it's going to be Black Adam and Don't Worry, Darling, a movie already kind of with a with a black pall over it due to the behind-the-scenes shit between Florence Pugh and Olivia Wilde. So, and, Well, also Shia LaBeouf, let's not leave Shia LaBeouf out of that situation. He is also Touché. a big part of it. And he is known piece of shit, Shia LaBeouf. So, sure. Um, and I've, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I've not really dug into a lot of the Shia LaBeouf of that situation. So I've, I've more dealt with the Florence, Florence Pugh, Olivia Wilde, Harry Styles side of that debacle. So it's even, even I'm not too familiar with the whole thing. Uh, I just know that uh, Florence Pugh was not comfortable working with Shia LaBeouf, and it's okay. a whole thing. It's a whole sure. thing. So, I mean, I know that outside of, uh, I think, the premiere, uh, she's not doing any press for the movie at all. Um, and honestly, it's kind of a bummer because there was a part of me that was like, I wouldn't mind seeing that movie. It looks fairly interesting. It's got a pretty good cast in it as well. So, it, I don't know. Kind of a bummer to hear, but... But yeah, I mean, it's like, it's fine. I'll probably still go see it because I love a Florence Pugh. So, uh, I mean, yeah, Florence Pugh's great. And also in that movie, uh, Chris Pine, who's great. Um, Nick Kroll, who I don't think has done anything horribly wrong. Um, but yeah, like, it's... Oh, I mean, <laughs> wait, Nick Kroll, are we talking about the comedian Nick Kroll? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you've seen the most recent episode of what we do in the shadows, he's, he's knocking it out of the park. <laughs> Yeah, Nick Kroll, very funny. I've I've also seen um, the first f- few seasons of Big Mouth, which is also pretty funny, also. So, um, which he does uh, several voices on that program as well, and is one of the creative voices behind it. So, yeah, Nick yeah. Kroll, very funny dude. Indeed. Uh, so you know, there the, and the the premise looked interesting. Like it looks like a movie I might want to see, but I, I'm gonna wait till the reviews come out and we'll see where it goes. But. Yeah, I might I might wait till it comes on to streaming or I may say it in theaters. I haven't decided yet. Um, but no, I mean, like studios mainly make those decisions for. For reasons of profit, and that's let's be honest, that's the only reasons why movies, why why people of color have been able to get the representation that they've gotten of late is because studios see that it makes good financial sense for them to do so. Uh, it's not altruistic on their part. Um, most of the people running the studios are still, you know, old white dudes, um, the, the, the classic OWD. So, you know, you're never, it's, it's really, that's really always going to be kind of a big part of what it is and why it is. So. Yeah. And I, I think that's becoming more and more obvious to the general public, but I mean, it should, does that really matter? No, I don't think so. No, I mean, because at the end of the day, it is still important that representation happens because representation does matter. Like it, you know, the entire history of film has been cishet white dudes at the, starring in, in, in movies. Um, it's OK for us to step back and let other people, you know, be in charge of movies. And look, just because the hero of the movie doesn't look like you doesn't mean it can't be a good movie. Um, it absolutely can be. Get your head 
fully out of your ass. Please and thank you. Yeah, maybe just enjoy a good story. You don't have to you don't have to self-insert into every single story you watch. Not not everything has to be about you. Yeah, there's a Cause, you're cause that Gen Z. Not everything has to be about you. Let's be honest, and I, I say this to myself as much as to anybody. Uh, you're not that special. I love you, but you're not special enough that everything has to be about you. Um, but I mean, yeah. But Goonies, though, um, fucking great movie. And Goonies, you know, Goonies, though, is special. And and look, at least for me, there were a, enough care as we've talked about before. There were enough insert characters in the movie that I was I was I was engaged. I was into it. Like it's. It's it's a fun movie. It's a movie that I I grew up on, and it's got all the things that you like, or or that kids in the eighties would have liked in a movie. Like it's got adventure and comedy. Like the kids got jokes, and the kids like are able to go on an adventure without adults, and somehow manage to survive setting any number of booby traps. Um, you know, by the skin of their teeth, most times. Um, the Brett, plot I, armor is thick. The plot is. armor is very thick on these characters. It is. I mean, if again, if this had been written by another screenwriter and directed by another filmmaker, um, at least one of those children would have died by the end of the movie. Let's be honest. That is absolutely a horror movie version of the Goonies you could do. Honestly, it is kind of the closest we get to a horror version movie of the Goonies. Let's be honest. To, uh, hold on. You're saying the Goonies is part horror? No, I'm saying it. Oh, it. it. Okay, I could not parse that sentence. Like the Goonies itself is the closest <laughs> no, it's... we're going to get to a Goonies horror movie. No, 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 no. The movie It is the closest we're going. Sorry, I, I, you're, you were good. You were right to clarify because I don't know that that would have come across well. Uh, no, the movie It is kind of the closest we're going to get to a Goonies horror movie. Like the Losers Club is kind of the horror version of the Goonies or the Monster Squad. I think I mentioned earlier, Monster Squad is also kind of the horror version of the Goonies. Yeah, I would uh, say. future future episode of this podcast, the Monster Squad. Hell yeah, I love a Monster Squad as well. Uh, We've Wolf already Man, got a guest for that episode too. Wolf so. Man has Nards, as you're well aware. So I've been told, right? That is a thing that I've learned. Uh, but yeah, so I think Monster Squad is the horror, horror Goonies. It, 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 I mean, tangentially, I guess. It's got a group of kids in a supernatural somewhat setting. Well, and I, I, think, I, I think Monster Squad is the kids version. It is the adult version. Um, because let's be honest, it, the book and the movie, not for kids. Monster oh, no. Squad, totally for kids. But it, not for kids. Now, I'm just saying there, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't see the similarity. I don't see enough similarities in the story to make that connection, but, you know, it's, it's fine. I, I make don't. That connection if you would like. I, I would and I do, but I don't really want to get into it right now because I'm just, I, I don't know that I have the energy. And let's be honest, I don't know that either of us has the energy at this point. I, so. No, I don't. Uh, hey, so. there it is. Um, Brett, anything that we've missed uh, with regard to the Goonies? Again, this movie doesn't do particularly well in its theatrical run. It does fine, but it's the VHS where, and, and the syndication run where it really begins to gain in its prominence. Um, and, well, and, and so I do have something else to say. You kind of didn't even give me a chance to answer the question. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, buddy. Uh because, yeah, I mean, 
you shouldn't be talking about this movie. It got a sequel, Stephen. Did it get a cinematic sequel, Brett? Because that's probably the next thing I need to talk about. Uh, you got me. Uh, <laughs> we have to. I have to go head over to the video game corner for the sequel. Let's uh, let's meander over there. Obviously, there weren't enough video or Goonies video games for us to dedicate an entire Oops All Video Game Corner episode to it. But yeah. No, no, it just uh, it got a sequel released in 1987, um, which two years later, weird, but sure. Sure. Um, Striking while the iron is tepid and lukewarm. Good plan. Yeah. Uh, so this, the, the story basically is uh, the Fratellis have broken out of jail again. Uh, and they Those have darn a, Fratellis. They have... Uh, vendetta. So they kidnap all of the Goonies, with the exception of Mikey, who must now go on an adventure to rescue all of them one at a time, while navigating various, you know, underground dungeons and different uh, uh, environments. Um, it also introduces a character named Annie the Mermaid to keep the you know sort of fantastical elements intact. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, she helps Mikey rescue the other Goonies, and, uh, well, no, wait, she's the last, she's the last one to be rescued, never mind, uh, and it really isn't explained. Cool. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, sounds like yeah. the, the, sounds like the plot on that one is airtight. Yeah, I mean, it was. It's a very paper thin plot for a video game. Just, sure, I mean, you need some semblance of a narrative to kind of construct the video game around, and I guess I can't really fault them for attempting that. No, and and, to, and so to be fair, there were other uh, games based on just the movie itself. Um, okay, but it's just like you know, straightforward release for Nintendo um, and my, you know, MSX Microsoft. Right. Uh, that are just like, you know, an adaptation of the movie, like platformer style. Um, but honestly enough, it, it's weird. Like, I remember the Goonies 2 video game a lot. And it was semi-popular, if I recall, because um, it got pretty high scores from critics. It was pretty, it was pretty beloved. Hmm. I think it's still pretty beloved to this day. Interesting. It's like a classic Nintendo video game. Okay. It had a lot of cool mechanics and was definitely um, reminiscent of old school computer adventure games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that had a lot to do with how popular it was. Um, but yeah. So the Goonies, if you want a sequel to the Goonies, go check out the Goonies 2 by Konami for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Okay. Um, whereas in terms of a cinematic sequel, um, the, basically they've been talking and by they, I mean, mostly the cast has been talking about it on and off, both confirming and denying its existence since about 2004, uh, Donner and Spielberg apparently had a story that they were working on, uh, but Warner brothers didn't have any interest. Uh, in 2007, Sean Astin said it was an absolute certainty, um, Donner then said, probably not. In 2008, Corey Feldman said on his blog, it's not going to happen. Um, and then Donner later said in 2010 that it absolutely was going to happen. Um, 
saying it was a definite thing. A 2020 reunion event, they all said, yeah, we're going to do it. We want to do it. Um, every couple of years we try it, but it doesn't really seem to work out. Um, and then in 2021, basically Feldman says it's never going to happen. Richard Donner is set to direct the last lethal weapon movie as his final movie. And then two months after that, he died. Um, so at that point, like not really any indication that it was going to take off. Um, although it is, um, I mean, there have been several rumors in 2021 of this, uh, looked late 2021. It looked like Disney plus picked up a series for development called our time, which was supposed to be kind of a, a TV spiritual sequel, I guess, in some way to the Goonies or maybe a direct sequel. I'm not sure, but in terms of cinematic sequel, I think there's no way it's actually going to happen, which is why we felt it was probably a good idea. Now there is, if you look on IMDb, a Goonies 2 listed as in development, but that's been up there for years at this point, and it's slated to come out in 2027, uh, which is still five years away. Uh, so the likelihood of it actually happening, I think, is pretty slim. Like Josh Brolin's a, a kind of a big name now. Um, he probably wouldn't come back. Um, most of the Fratellis are either uh, dead or terrible. Like Joey Pants is pretty much your last surviving Fratelli who would be, you know, any good in this kind of thing. And it would probably have to be like the kids or the grandkids of the original cast. So the original cast would just be there as glorified cameos anyway. Um, so to what extent would it really be a sequel? It would end up probably being something more like a reboot. Oh yeah, it absolutely would be a requel. 100%. It would have a fraction of the cast, but who would basically be there as fan service, let's be honest. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, would I go see it? Fuck yeah, I'd go see it. But, Nostalgia's strong with this property for Brett, let's be honest. Yeah, as it is for many people. I think right. It would get, I think it would get a lot of publicity. I think a lot of people would enjoy a requel to The Goonies. We're rife with 80s nostalgia right now. It continues. Uh, don't know why. Uh, I mean, this this shit is always cyclical. Like every 30, 40 years, the stuff from 30, 40 years ago becomes popular again. So like when we were kids in the 90s, it was the troll shit from like the 60s and the lava lamps were popular again. Uh, well, and yeah, then, but it just seems like the 80s nostalgia is just ubiquitous. Like it's always been there. Like, it's like 80s nostalgia has been a thing since I think the 90s. I like, think part of that is because we're 80s kids, honestly. Like, so we tend to carry that nostalgia more tightly than other forms of nostalgia. So we're more more keen to see it than we are other forms of nostalgia that we're not directly connected to. All right. I mean, but 90s nostalgia is starting to creep in too. Now we got like boy bands popping up again. Um, most of them, you know, K-pop groups, but still. You got boy bands starting to pop up again. Like I think '90s nostalgia is going to start making a comeback here in another year or two, um, and we're going to start seeing some more of that pop up. So, yeah, well, I don't. I mean, K-pop boy bands have been around since the original boy bands in America have been. But well, I think they're gaining prominence here a little more now than they had been prior. Is the point I was trying to make? Sure. And and maybe I don't have enough context. Maybe they've always been popular over here, and I just didn't know that which is entirely possible I, I know very little about most things so 
I mean, I have the context, but I mean, this is an episode about the Goonies, so it's not going a K-pop tangent. Sure, sure. Uh, this this episode has already been tangent heavy enough. Let's be honest. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, basically, sequel probably never going to happen. Let's let's be honest. So, um, is it? But Stephen Goonies never say die. That's true. So look, if there is a sequel to the Goonies at some point. Uh, we'll talk about it on this podcast. That's the promise that we have made to you. And in the past two years, Brett, we have never had to make good on that promise. I'm getting a little nervous about Incredible Hulk, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, I mean, look, any, but here's the thing. Would it be a direct sequel to The Incredible Hulk or would it just be a Hulk movie? Uh, that's going to be an argument we're going to need to have off camera. Uh, yep. That's that's going to need to be an off mic movie or an off mic argument for sure. Uh, and honestly, we don't need to worry about it until they announce something. So, right, right. But if you've seen the recent episode of She-Hulk. Uh... I mean, look, they they may handle that entirely within that show. I don't know. So maybe who's, we'll who's to D- say not D23 maybe. is about a week and a half away, two and a half weeks away. We'll find out then. Yeah. Uh, depending on when it comes out within the context of the release of this episode. I'm not sure, but yeah. Um, so Goonies comes out June 7th, 1985. Uh, it opens to $9.1 million in its opening weekend and ultimately grosses $63.3 million domestic, another 848.9 thousand uh, internationally for a total of $64.1 uh, million at the worldwide box office. Not a great showing, but not awful either. Um, it opens number two the week of June 7th, 1985. The first movie in its third weekend, a big hit for 1985. It is a sequel uh, with the most one of the most ridiculous titles uh, of any sequel in history. Uh, it is Rambo colon first blood part two. Oh, that one. Yep. That's the one where, uh, he goes from being like, uh, you know, disgraced war, war veteran with PTSD, uh, to uh, literal superhuman. Uh, so fucking wild that Goonies in at number two, uh, in third place in its second weekend, uh, Fletch. Uh, a movie that is finally getting its its big Hollywood reboot with John Hamm coming up shortly. Uh, in fourth place, a movie called Perfect. I don't know it. Don't know what it's about, but it's also new this week. Opens to $4.2 million. And then in fifth place, the Richard Pryor, John Candy movie, Brewster's Millions, which honestly, I remember being pretty fun. Um, yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. Uh, and then rounding out the top 10, you've got the uh, the first James Bond of the 80s, or I guess the first of the, no, that's the last of the Roger Moore Bond films, A View to a Kill, uh, if I'm not mistaken about that. I'm pretty sure that's right. Pretty sure Banger that's the last. Banger of a song. Banger of an opening theme song there. Uh, yeah. Uh, then we've got, in seventh place, Beverly Hills Cop, one of the highest grossing films of 1985. Um, or I'm sorry, no, 1984. It's in its 27th week at this point. It's probably been around for a hot minute. Uh, in eighth place, we've got the Harrison Ford, Peter Weir film witness. What if there was a witness? Uh, and then in ninth place, P- police Academy Two: colon, their first assignment. And finally in 10th place, desperately seeking Susan. Uh, the Tomatometer score is a 76% certified fresh. 
the critics consensus the Goonies is an energetic, sometimes noisy mix of Spielbergian sentiment and funhouse tricks that will appeal to kids and nostalgic adults alike. Uh, the meta score on this one is a 62 based on generally favorable reviews from 13 critics. And finally, the letterbox score is a 3.8 Brett out of five stars. How do you rate the 1985 Richard Donner film, The Goonies. 3.8 is disgustingly low. I give it a 5, Steve. Uh, whereas I give it not much higher than a 3.8. I, I landed at 4 on this one. Um, good movie. Love it. Um, it's a lot of fun. Just because I don't think it's a perfect movie, Brett, doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. Um, I'm sorry. You shaking your head at me frustratedly. Um but I mean that that gives our average a four point five, which makes it one of the higher films that we've rated on this podcast. So I would call that a win. But no, it's 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 a good film. Like I, I like Goonies a lot. Like it's it it pulls at a few nostalgic strings for me. Like I recognize that it's not a perfect movie, but it's still a movie that I enjoy. Still a movie that I return to. If I had children, I would probably watch the Goonies with them. As it stands, I don't have children, so I'm going to have to, like, you know, borrow my nephews at some point and let them make one of them watch it with me. Probably the oldest one, because he's, like, almost 10. Get him started, early. I mean, you know, train up a child when in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Um, that's one of those Bible-y things that I, that I know. So, you know, there you go. Um, but, yeah, um, one more question I have for you, Brett, before we close out our first episode of season three uh brett what is your favorite of data's gadgets i mean it's probably the pictures of power let's be honest it's because it's the most ridiculous it doesn't make any sense he nope. should have died mm -hmm. uh but he gets saved you know by what? a slinky and clattering teeth and somehow those save him yeah it's i mean it's the most absurd so of course it has to be my favorite i'm a big slick shoes guy myself um the shoes pop open, the sneakers pop open and oil spills out the back. Like what purpose could those possibly serve? Why do you have those? Like it's such a plot contrivance, but I absolutely love them. Also, there was a, a Christian rock band when I was growing up in, in high school called slick shoes that my friends were very fond of. So I, you know, I heard the, that line slick shoes. Are you crazy? So many times growing up. So yeah, it's for me, it's gotta be the slick shoes, but yeah. But yeah. What purpose was the Pinterest of Power going to serve? Also, yep. like, what would you exactly. guys use those for otherwise? Uh, I mean, the worst one is probably the camera on, like, the the spring loaded camera, uh, which never works. Like, either when he or his father does it. Like, there's a deleted scene where he tries to use it, and it like, as soon as it pops up, it falls off and breaks. And then his dad does it at the end, gets a successful picture off, and then it busts open, and all the film comes rolling out of the camera. So never, never quite works. But you know, God bless him for trying, I guess. Um, but yeah, there it is. There's, uh, there's our episode on the Goonies. Um, so stay tuned. We've actually got some great stuff coming up for the rest of this month. We've got some fun, uh, guests, uh, some returning guests, a new guest. Uh, it's, it's going to be a fun rest of the month. So stick with us. Uh, season three is going to be good. And then after we're done here, we go right into Spookython 2022, our third ever Spookython. We've got some fun stuff lined up for you there as well. So it's going to be a good time. Stick with us, kids. It's going to be great. Um, this has been the disenfranchised podcast. Uh, shoot us an email, disenfranchpod at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know if there are any 
uh, failed franchise starters that you would like to see us cover, and we might actually cover them in in season three. We've got some some space in season three that we can cover some stuff. So let us know, and we might do it. Um, you can also follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, and Facebook at Pod. If you feel like supporting the podcast, swing by Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave us a nice juicy five-star rating and review. Uh, that helps us go a long way uh, toward reaching other listeners like yourselves, and we would really appreciate that. That is the best way for you to support us that's not monetary. If you would like to support us monetarily, we've mentioned it earlier in the episode, patreon.com slash pod. Uh, right now, uh, patrons at any level know exactly what we're covering the rest of the month. So anything that we have alluded to that we're covering this month, uh, you can see both it and the people that we're planning on having on those episodes as well. So uh, patreon.com slash disenfranchpod. I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. Brett, where can we find you on social media? You can find me on Instagram and Letterboxd at sus underscore warlock fan fucking tastic well that is our episode on 1985's the goonies one of our favorites and uh, hopefully one of yours as well uh so until next time with uh, a returning guest and a fun movie um i am your host stephen foxworthy for my co-host brett wright and myself disenfranchised never says die <laughs>